Um, what was going through your mind as a 13-year-old girl? Oh, my goodness. Seeing stuff? I was, the first thing is, like, this is our 9-11. Because, obviously, mm. you know, I was very aware of that event almost 20 years ago now. And it was like, oh, my God, this is 9-11. The second was, if these are Muslims, as in the perpetrators, then life is going to change. And I... I'll tell you why I recall that day, not because all of this was happening, but because I cried. And I'm not, I'm quite an emotionally resilient person, but I remember crying to my best friend, knowing that something would change in our community, crying because people were dying, you know, they were being killed, bombs were going off, feeling unsafe. You seem quite emotional now. Yeah, yeah, sorry. No, 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 of, I think it's a good thing. I'm kind of, yeah. It means an awful lot to you. It does, and sorry, it's just... No, um, not at all, don't apologise. Sort of reliving, reliving that emotions and just knowing, I don't know, you know when you know in your gut something's going to change yeah. and I didn't realise how important the events of that day would be on my own personal life. Mm. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018, in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. It's hard to find enough superlatives to describe the force of nature that is Fatima Zaman. A Muslim woman of British Bengali descent, Fatima is a next-generation counter-extremist. Growing up in Tower Hamlets, she was just 13 years old when she witnessed the 7-7 terrorist attacks in London, during which her school doubled up as an evacuation centre for the injured and dying. Citing it as an event that completely shaped her personal narrative, after graduating, Fatima was recruited by Ghanaian diplomat Kofi Annan, former Secretary General of the United Nations, to join his foundation in 2016. As part of her work, Fatima leads a programme called Extremely Together. The campaign aims to counter violent extremism in local communities, both in the UK and globally, as well as inspiring and engaging the next generation of leaders. She also spent a year as scholar-in-residence with former President of the United States Barack Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama at their foundation in the United States. Fatima is due to head up the under-30 UK delegation to the G20 this year, focusing on global citizenship and multiculturalism for young people. In addition, she has the accolade of being the youngest recipient of the Asian Women of Achievement Chairman's Award. Please note our interview was recorded before the coronavirus outbreak. I grew up in East London, in Tower Hamlets. If you don't know much about Tower Hamlets, I'll give you the statistic because I always liked saying that and then sharing my experience. So I grew up in Tower Hamlets, which is statistically the poorest borough in the UK, though it did not feel like that at all times. On the contrary, it's one of those places where everybody comes together as a community. You know, we, all of our neighbours knew each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we would leave our front doors open kind of thing. So I didn't feel that. However, as you grow up and you develop more awareness, you realise actually there's like a dual 
society happening where mm. you've got Canary Wharf on one end presents like the top 1% of the country's wealth. And then you cross the street and you've got absolute poverty and mm. um, council housing and social housing. A lot of places are like that though. I think it was fairly similar where I grew up. You know, like you say, you have the prosperity mm-hmm. and you have the wealth and then on literally sometimes on the other side of the street within a stone's throw you've got the poverty or people living in more dire conditions absolutely and that's the contrast that i grew up in went to a state school all girls state school where i don't think i lacked for anything in terms of being confident finding my voice and that comes down to the family unit that i was based in my parents were very supportive brothers and sisters yes brothers and sisters you know my sister was my role model in the sense that she was very smart, high achieving, one of the smartest girls in the school. And older was, than you. Older than right, me, okay. and so that was something for me to, to look up to. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're from a Bengali Muslim background? Yes, as well, I am. Right? My family emigrated to the UK probably as the first or second wave of now British Bangladeshis yeah. um, came over to the UK and, and really settling in the heart of East London. We talked about economic prosperity, and mm. it really was that. And they found it hard. I read something online yeah. about you speaking to another. Yeah, don't get me magazine. wrong. Um, you know, my mom shares stories about facing racism um, mm. in the 80s and early 90s. Fortunately, I didn't experience that. The first time I was racially abused, I'd say, or that I was aware that I was racially abused was when I was 19. The experiences that my mom and dad had and my siblings had was not the same because feces was put through the door oh, where wow. the milkman would come and drop the milk in. Um, racists would urinate in the milk so that my oh, mom couldn't Christ. use it for her children. So a completely different experience. Were you aware of these things happening at the time? Or is this something you've learned since? I, so I've learned about it from my mum, yeah. but it was definitely something that I was aware of that happened in our community community but again um, because my family experienced it my mum sheltered me quite a lot but that being said as you get older and as you develop your own sense of awareness you you become more aware to it um, and it does shape you and it certainly has shaped me and my experiences today. And something quite pivotal happened when you were 13 and at school. Yep Um, so obviously 7-7 happened I was at school when the Allgate blast happened, Allgate East, and it was very close. Um, but the interesting thing, and I specifically remember hearing sirens like non-stop, really? and nobody else flinched. But I kept turning around. What to time my of phone. day was it? I it was in the morning. Right, it was literally right. like. 8 30 9 o'clock so you're literally getting to school at this point i, I got in earlier <laughs> i'm gonna give away that i was quite a studious and a bit of a geek that i would get in early to kind of like read okay. books and okay. um and kind of get prepared for the day and all i remember sitting in one of my classes and feeling apprehensive and then you know you could see the a13 commercial road kind of sirens and and um blue light services just going past you mm. i remember turning to my friend and saying something's going on she's like mm. no you're just making it up because we live in london you know yeah. blue lights are a normal thing um and then about mid-morning halfway through the day we were evacuated from the school and told to go home but not before seeing the news and being told that um, terrorist attacks had happened in london did they use your school as a refuge, is that right? Yep, so it doubled up as an evac centre um, and so lots wow. of the injured people or people who had been affected had been brought in while we were being evacuated as, you know, year nine students. What um, was going through your mind as a 13-year-old girl? Oh, my goodness. Seeing this stuff? I was, the first thing is, like, this is our 9-11 because obviously, mm. you know, I was very aware of that event almost 20 years ago now 
and it was like, oh my God, this is 9-11. The second was, if these are Muslims, as in the perpetrators, then life is going to change. And I, I'll tell you why I recall that day, not because all of this was happening, but because I cried. And I'm not, I'm quite an emotionally resilient person, but I remember crying to my best friend, knowing that something would change in our community, um, crying because people were dying, you know, they were being killed, bombs were going off, feeling unsafe. You seem quite emotional now. Yeah, yeah. sorry. No, no, I'm no, no. Of, I think it's a good thing. I'm kind of, yeah. It means an awful lot to you. It does, and sorry, it's just... No, um, not at all, don't apologise. Sort of reliving, reliving that emotions and just knowing, I don't know, you know when you know in your gut something's going to change yeah. and I didn't realise how important the events of that day would be on my own personal life. Mm. And you carry a lot of vicarious trauma with you over the years. And even now speaking to you, obviously, it's, yeah, it, it's like sort of coming out. But I absolutely knew it meant something different for my community. It meant something different for me. Is it fair to say this was quite a pivotal moment when we're talking about you and your career and what you wanted to go on to do? Is it fair to say that? Yeah, 100%. I don't think I would be in this. I, w- I wouldn't call myself a counter-extremist. Mm had I not experienced so directly yeah. the events and the aftermath of 7-7. I mean, you know, I mentioned I'm Muslim, I come from a community where we are predominantly Muslim, and really it shaped the narrative. It shaped my personal narrative. I, don't, I wouldn't say it shaped the community's narrative because I can't speak for everyone, but it certainly shaped my narrative within that community. Are we talking about people's attitudes or just the, claim, the state everything. of everything? From the top level of foreign policy changing mm. and all the counter-terrorism measures through to neighbours who once we would leave our doors open to suddenly yeah. looking at you like you're a suspect in, in your own community to women's hijabs being pulled off to my dad being called a terrorist because he has like what I would call a tiny beard like he doesn't even have mm. a long one my dad literally had like a little bit of facial hair but to being called a terrorist by one of our neighbor's sons who I've grown up calling my friend and yeah. I'm not going to say his name and call him out but overnight everything changed did that shock you yeah and it took me back to the stories of me hearing you know when my mum would tell me stories about racists and them putting feces through the door or terrorizing my brother and me hoping a little like actually no mum britain has changed it's not the same but then suddenly going oh my god she was right or i shouldn't have overlooked my mum's um stories because this is the xenophobia that I'm experiencing. And this is a bit more terrifying because there's a direct link to violence here or inciting violence. And it was really hard to cope with because obviously you want to see the best in people. So how did this affect your studies? You went on to university. I did, yeah. What did you study there? Um, so, so I did three degrees. One's <laughs> <laughs> well, not good enough. I'm just going to so, go, go um, all out. <laughs> so I suppose, that's, I suppose in answer to your uh, question, it didn't affect my studies in the sense that I still went on to pursue yeah. further education. But yeah. I studied politics. Um, okay. As you can imagine, yeah. it politicised me. It politicised my generation. I then went on to study two masters in counterterrorism and security okay. because I was searching for an answer to why... I was searching for the answer to a number of questions, but why do people use violence? Why why am I seeing a lot of Muslims or people purporting to be Muslims? And second, what is it about people that makes them radicalised? And really, what is it about some people that means that they are not radicalised? And I think 
that latter question is something that policy officials need to consider because that's not often what we ask we always ask you know why does something happen why are we seeing violence why are we seeing violent extremism but we don't really ask why is there you know what's an absence of that so yeah it definitely um inspired my studies you think a lot of that of the things you were just talking about is born out of ignorance in the first instance or is there more to it I think there's a lot of things. There's a fear, and rightly so. I'm, I was, af- I'm, you know, sometimes I'm still afraid to go on the tube. On Wednesday, I was talking to someone about seven seven, and they were saying how, oh my God, Londoners are so resilient. We got back on the tube the next day, and for me, it was like, oh, I'm still sometimes scared to go on the tube, you know. So there's fear, there's ignorance about communities in terms of communities of colour or communities of difference, but at the same time, there's a lot of misunderstanding and mystique around certain things and that feeds into the narrative that you know the right wing kind of fuel which allows the islamists to kind of say look we're being persecuted and then the right wing you know we're seeing an increase in far right extremism in britain to kind of say you know we're seeing an infiltration in of our country so it really these two types of narrative feed each other and it is based on fear and a misunderstanding of, of one another's communities. The pinnacle of that, or the, the smaller section of that, which we hear about in the news often, is when it leads to extreme violence. It is, in my opinion, without kind of going into the details of it, um, based on a misunderstanding and a fear of difference and a violent denial of diversity. That's what I think terrorism and violent extremism is. So you went on to work for Kofi Annan, yes. part of his foundation, which you still yes. do, yes. you're still there. Can you tell me more about that and yeah, how that abs- came about and what he was like and that kind of thing? Absolutely. So, yeah, in 2016, so he had set up his foundation after leaving the United Nations, mm. having been Secretary General. And he, in 2016, decided or had the realisation that actually young people are being disproportionately affected by violent extremism, both as perpetrators but as victims. And he put out a call specifically looking for young activists to join his foundation to lead his Countering Violent Extremism initiative under the Peace and Conflict um, Resolution Arm of his foundation. And you you were working at the time or you were still studying? I had just finished my master's. Ah, perfect timing. Perfect timing, (laughs) looking for a job. But the reason this resonated for me is, you know, I've been an activist ever since 7-7 happened in my local community advocating for equality and social justice. And this spoke to me on another level. This spoke to me in the sense that here I could take my activism that I had been doing at a lower level and really amplify it. The second reason was it would have the backing of an international statesman who is not you know, aligned to any government, who's not politically motivated, but rather motivated by people and doing good and therefore doing well. And that mantra spoke to me because that's how I've been brought up that's the type of work that I want to do and so I thought I'm never gonna get it I reached out and then I get a call (laughs) saying actually Mr. Nan would like to meet you would you mind flying over to Geneva? Okay all right let's wind back you get that what what happened when you got that call you said said, out a little shriek or I was like what? (laughs) It was more of a oh no what have I done? (laughs) Oh no I now have to and then it was like oh my god this is Kofi Annan and one thing I will tell you is that my obsession um my like awe of Kofi 
started from when I was 13 right. because he at that time was the only person talking about global terrorism. He was a leader. And he was a leader there. and he was talking about having a people-centered mm. approach. He was talking about having young people as part of that conversation mm. and for him to invite me to sit around his decision-making table. A young woman coming from the heart of East London, an often forgotten borough from an often forgotten community gave me my voice gave me confidence to actually realize there is something more that I can be doing and he gave me the tools through his foundation to be able to do the work that I do now which is you know countering violent extremism on a global scale empowering local initiatives to be able to kind of be resilient to messages of violent extremists and as I said I was sort of obsessed with this statesman and how he did business because it was completely different it was non-political and that really appealed to me so to be called to service by him although I was slightly nervous and confused and excited and all of those emotions I was ready you had a purpose yeah yeah it was like finally someone believes in me and yes you know a lot of people did believe in me but to have Kofi Annan believe in you was like a step change yeah, of course. and he was absolutely brilliant and you went with him to the One Young World Summit yes in Canada. is this the summit where Emma Watson made her Emma Watson well the Duchess of Sussex yeah so if not now then when if not us than who and if not here then where absolutely it was that moment it was that moment and that was really to launch our campaign okay even though we so we spent so she was part of it so she she was there as a counselor because one young world is this amazing global initiative that brings together young activists specifically and when I say young I mean like under 30 from all walks of life you know whether it's business or private sector or the public sector and really empowers them and uplifts them and gives them a platform to share their stories and work alongside people like Emma Watson, Kofi Annan, Sir Bob Geldof, you know the Duchess yeah, of Sussex yeah. and really to amplify and share our messages of peace and positivity um, and that was an incredible experience because it really catapulted my work with Kofi Annan into the spotlight and the front line of realising that efforts to fight violent extremism are rooted in local and community efforts but when they are globalised and put on such a platform they can have greater impact beyond that immediate community that they are serving. So it was really an incredible opportunity. And to do that, beside Kofi, was a dream come true. And because of all this, was it last year that you won the Asian Women of Achievement Award? So it was in 2017. 2017. So yeah. they said, or they described your approach as internationally groundbreaking and you'd shown enormous resilience in pursuing your cause. But despite death threats, yeah. you had death threats. I have, and AWA, it was an honour to win. Was it, because if my understanding is right, you were nominated in a specific category. Yes. You didn't win that category. I didn't. So you must have been sitting there thinking, oh, great. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, it's an amazing event, and obviously you were in a room full of incredible amazing. women. And you might, but you must have thought, oh, okay. And then oh, I cannot tell you the emotions I felt. bit deflated, right? And you so, kind of calmed down a bit. <laughs> it was the last category. So yeah. I was nominated for Young Achiever. Yeah. And I think I was the youngest in that category. Yeah. And then, actually, what I didn't realise is that there's 18 categories. Ooh, but there's also preference. another category called the Chairman's Award. Ooh. So they called out the Young Achiever as the last category and it was like psyching yourself yeah, up of course. and then they said Anushka Bhava and I was like 
gracious, yeah, lose the face, but also yeah, very yeah, happy yeah, for course, my fellow fellow but Asian woman. You kind of calm down, don't you? And it was like dissipate. Yeah, because you're not breathe again. Yeah, it was a sigh of relief. Like okay, it's fine. Um, it was amazing to be nominated, and it was like, do you know what? This is a real good affirmation of of the work that I do. And then it came, which I didn't realize that there's a final award, which is called the Chairman's Award. And within moments of you know that feeling of okay, I didn't win, to then them saying, and the final award goes to someone for the first time in the history of the awards in 18 years, is derived the winner is derived from the Young Achievers category. So I'm there. I am thinking, okay, if I couldn't win my award, there's no way I can. If I couldn't win my category, there's no way I'm going to win the overall one. Um, so I'm just sort of like, okay, it's fine, just sit at the back. Yeah. And then suddenly they say this person, you know puts herself in the face of danger, she works with Kofi Annan, I'm like, You're like hold oh, on. Oh. <laughs> and then again, the penny's not dropping because the same Kofi Annan, I'm like, who is that? I couldn't quite believe it. Like, I do couldn't. I know this person? Do I work with them? Honestly, <laughs> and then they called out my name and it was like, oh my God. And I think I just went further back and I was crying oh, because wow. I was, because it just, oh my God, how do I put it? It just... Meant everything everything so that my much. parents sacrificed to come to this country, going through like the racism and the xenophobia and the Islamophobia that we faced, and then myself pursuing a career that is relatively very dangerous. You do actually, people have threatened your life. Yeah, and actually um, the AWA came at a time where I had been subjected to systematic abuse for several months for the work that I had been doing because... In what form? They'd come to your house? Or? So, yeah, I mean, a lot of it was a lot of online abuse. So firstly, starting with um, far-right extremists calling me all sorts, every name under the sun, which is stuff that I can deal with in that I can turn my social media off. Mm. But then the other stuff was people who are purporting to be in Daesh fighting for the Islamic State, saying that they're going to kill me finding out where I live, sending me death threats, extremist organisations, writing exposés on me, um, calling me every name under the sun, slandering me and threatening me, holding me up as a disloyal Muslim and a traitor to my own community. So not just the physical death threats that I had to then take to the police yeah. and you know report as, as something that I'm afraid of, but also slandering me and my work where I believe I very much have been sticking up for the Muslim community that I come from. So it was across a range of threats and tactics to disrupt and destroy and, and negate the good work that I think I was doing. So when I did win my AWA award and when the judges did say that actually despite the personal challenges and the danger that I put myself in, a community of amazing women mm. believe that I am doing something good for my community, from the South Asian community, it was really emotional because it was, okay. Vindication. It was vindication. It was finally people are seeing why I really do this work because I could sit in an office and I could go about my day and not do this work mm. and keep myself safe, but I would not feel my purpose was being achieved and if not me, then who? You know, absolutely. And they also think you're going to win the Nobel Prize. Oh my! So goodness. no pressure. <laughs> I I mean, hey, never say never. But at the moment, it's just about making sure that nobody experiences what I did. It's about bringing young w women and girls and young people out of violent extremism and making sure that there's not another seven seven, um, and that we can reduce violent extremism globally. Mm. Um, and if I can do a little bit of that every day through my work at the Kofi Annan Foundation then, you know, I think I'm achieving minuscule peace and adding to the wider picture of achieving global peace um, bit by bit and 
just doing my bit. That's how I see it. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. We haven't even touched on the fact that you've worked with the Obamas as well. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that was... Um, um, how did that happen? Again, I sort of roll into these things. <laughs> Just last year, I finished up being sort of a scholar in residence with the Obama Foundation. And again, of all the people that I admire in this world, as you know, Kofi is one of them, but President Barack Obama is also one of those people. And I had his, like, all his speeches uh, memorised. And, and Mrs. Obama, actually. Ooh. She's fierce and she's amazing. And they put out a call, again, looking at activists who are working across a range of issues and I actually had a conversation with Kofi saying you know this is an opportunity that I think will help elevate not my work but this time it was about elevating the voices of other young people who come from grassroots communities such yeah. as myself um, and something that I would want to do and he was absolutely supportive and so I got to go off to America for a year be given the sort of Obama way of doing things, kind of those tools, to come back now and work with communities in East London and young women and to empower them to kind of find their voice. I found mine through activism and being helped by people like Kofi and, and President Obama, but I want to do that for the other young women. Mm-hmm. You know, that peer-to-peer mentoring, that peer-to-peer engagement. And that's how we sort of came across each other in AWA, because I really think young Asian women in Britain have so much to offer our communities. We should not be known by the strength of the melanin in our skin, yeah. but rather by the contributions we can offer the societies that we live in. And really, um, having learned all of this and having experienced this through the Obamas and their story as, you know, being America's first family, but coming from Chicago um, Chicago yeah, and the yeah, South, South Side, Side yeah. um, and a community that's not so dissimilar to, to Tower Hamlets in the sense, you know, there's a lot of gang violence, but so much prosperity or talent. Yeah, so you're on the same wavelength. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, get, I don't do things because they're supported by big brands or household names, but really things or people that can allow me to amplify and support the stories of of the community that I come from. And again, their personal story really speaks to me. And it was great to be mentored by President and Mrs. Obama. They are amazing. And it was funny because I first met him in 2016 um, when he came to London to do his final presidential tour. And I recall saying to him, one day I'm going to work for you. <laughs> and then sort of two years later, it what happened. What did he say? Did, he, did you remind him? I you, did, did remind did him. When I, when I got to the US and I told him, he and I said, you might not remember me, but mm. we met here and I, I made a cheeky throwaway comment to you. And he said, no, I remember. And welcome, because, you know, you kind of spoke it into existence. That's um, pretty incredible. It's pretty boring. <laughs> good for you thank you but yeah so really now it's about making sure that I can take my experiences with these amazing incredible people and invest it back into my community I have quick fire questions oh okay what would you describe as your greatest success Ooh. that's that's hard do I have to just answer yeah oh it has to be um being called to service by Kofi Annan that was he sounds a, like an incredible man oh he was and uh, I, I miss him I miss him. I I miss him because I think he was incredible. However, I was with my colleagues at the foundation and Mrs. Anna Nane the other day, and she said, you are his legacy. So even though- What a lovely thing to say. What a lovely thing to say. So even though he's not here, his work continues through myself and my colleagues. Absolutely. Your greatest failure? I wouldn't call it a failure, but rather, even though I've achieved quite a lot since working with the Kofi Annan Foundation, I am, 
and this is just a testament to how I am as a person I am frustrated with how much more we still have to achieve because everywhere you look every day there's yet another story of a bombing or a shooting or a knife attack mm. you know um, and it's consistently like oh my god we're doing all this work but still there are terrorists who exist in the world so I just not failure but you know when there is a complete eradication of violent extremism that's when I will say I've I've done a good job but until then I'm still striving to make that happen the Asian Women of Achievement Network their mantra or as part of the mantra is kindness and collaboration what does that mean to you in your personal and professional life oh I, it has to be summed up by do good and therefore you will do well in the sense that I cannot if I see injustice whether I'm walking down the street whether I'm you know fighting a terrorist or de-radicalizing a young woman or I'm in the supermarket if there is an injustice even small for me I'm compelled to do something in whatever way I can and I feel that everybody should in a world where, you know, there is so much greed, there is so much looking out for yourself and there is so much selfishness and often people who are suffering get overlooked. We should all lead with kindness, but we should all lead with the fact that I can do well and I can prosper, but I can also do good at the same time. And I think if that mindset and we pivoted towards that mindset as a community, as a country, as a global citizenry, then we will see a reduction in wars and violence and conflict. And I, I truly believe that. Is there anything that scares you? Oh, loads of things scare Seems me. It's crazy asking that to someone who's had death threats. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, those death threats do scare me, but then you kind of have to realise it, it comes, comes with the territory. What scares me, mainly, like, I can't sleep at night, <laughs> is that the voices of underrepresented minorities aren't being heard because we do have a lot to offer. And I'm speaking about people in my community who often get underwritten or pushed aside for various reasons but using my platform and my ability to amplify that is one way of addressing that but it would be really a shame if we just kind of turned our backs on communities like people in Tahamuts. The most selfless answer I think I've had. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you'll just say like snakes, spiders. Oh, all of that, all of that. Hey, I'm tough, I fight terror. <laughs> What's left on your to-do list? Oh. Is it a big one? Get a long list. Oh my god, I, I again, you probably can tell I have this sense of urgency that mm. I just don't want to live my life with any regrets when it comes to public service. So, the next thing for me is that I'll be heading up the under 30 UK delegation to the G20 this year and I'll be focusing on global citizenship and um, multiculturalism. So, taking everything that I've learned over the last few years, all the activism that I've done, and taking it to a multilateral situation where we will have every country, well, 20 of the top countries who have the wealth and saying, these are the issues that affect young people and young women in Britain and this is what you have to do about it and I will not leave this room until you hear me. <laughs> or in so many words. Fatima, you're bloody awesome. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Oh my God. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon. <laughs> <laughs>